This morning we have a special treat. Larry and Diane are great friends. We've known them for a long time. They have served in Chad uh, for 25 years, and uh, we have run a lot of that journey with them. And so uh, they've come this morning to kind of give us an update on what's going on in Chad and what's going on in their ministry. So would you give them a warm Northview welcome as Larry comes up? Come on. Thank you, Steve. Yep. Well, it's been a blessing for us to be here this morning. I don't know if Jesse's still here, but I don't know how Jesse chose the songs that she used as part of the worship team. There's no way that she could have known, I don't think, what the topic of our message was. But they did a great job. We came in before the first service. They were doing rehearsal. And even before we started, we were blessed by the, the songs that they were doing. And it's, a, it's, a, it's great to be here this morning. Our passage this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you might want to look that up. I want to talk about what does grace look like. We're going to do a little bit of an overview of our ministry in Chad. I'll help you get a little bit of the context for the message, and then we'll go back to the, to the topic of grace. So let's read from 1 Corinthians 15, first 11 verses. Paul says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and upon which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Let's pray again as we start the message this morning. God, we just sang, inviting you, inviting your presence here this morning. And once again, God, we we ask that you would be with us, that you would touch, that you'd encourage every person that's here this morning. You might give us a new appreciation of of your grace and of what that means to us in our lives. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I mentioned we worked in Chad. And we say that to some people, and they say, oh, I know Chad. He's sitting in the second row over here. Some people say, oh, we know Chad. That's the name of our grandson. But we're not talking about that Chad. We're talking about this little remote country in the middle of Africa, Chad, Africa. Dan and I worked near the town of Mongo, right there in the middle of Chad, Africa, for about 25 years. In order, again, to, to help you better understand the context of the message this morning, I'm just going to give you a brief overview of what that looked like. When we first began work in Chad, our family looked like the picture on the left. Now our family's changed just a little bit. We have four boys, uh, two grandsons at this point, and another granddaughter uh, uh, coming along the way. When we first started in Chad, it was June of 1992. We felt God was leading us to the Donglea people, and we made a survey trip, and there I am sitting on a mat with some of the Dongliat elders. 
A few months later, when the rains ended, we loaded up our vehicle and headed out to the Gara for the first time with all our worldly possessions. That was our first home in the Dongleat region. During the time there, we found some people who were uh, willing to join with us in the translation of the New Testament into Dongleat. We did a lot of work with the church, did a lot of literacy work. Throughout that time, we lived with the people. Every day at noon, we would have a, we'd invite everybody that was around to join us for the noon meal. We rubbed shoulders with those in the community. We spent 10 years in that village, very positive memories of that time. Then we moved 40 kilometers, 30 miles up the road to the regional capital. It's called Mongo. And we worked not just with that one language, but with a cluster of languages. And the part of Chad we worked with, just that one part of Chad, there were 27 languages. And we, we started working with a number of those different languages. We continued doing translation work. That's the Dongleat translation team that we ended up with. We did a Bible story. We did, continued to do a lot of literacy work, not just with the, the Dongleat, but with other groups as well. Throughout that time that we were in Mongo, we were able to reach most of those 27 languages literacy. Our colleagues have worked, added a couple more since then. And we were able to do some translation or Bible story with the majority of those groups as well. Then after about 10 years in Mongo, we packed up the vehicle once again, as high as it would go. And we headed into the Chad's capital city of Jemena, where the, for the last four years we worked in administration. I was the branch director. Diane worked in member care. This is the group we worked with. We had about 13 Chadian colleagues that we worked with and about 40 missionary colleagues that came from around the world. We tried to provide some direction and leadership for that group. And then our last step, in November of this last year, we moved to Portland, Oregon. Three of our kids are there, one of our grandsons. We have some parents with some health challenges. We decided we wanted to be a little bit more accessible to them. But we're still involved in the in in the ministry in Africa and in Chad in particular. Um, I'm working with a seed company, which is an organization that helps Chadians translate for Chadians and those in other African countries to translate for people from their own country. I also work with something called the Sahel Initiative. I'll mention more about that in a second. And Diane's continuing to be a member care person for SIL Chad. She sends out a weekly prayer letter. She helps orient people to the branch, etc. So in this next chapter... Our focus isn't just Chad, but it's the Sahel area. Most people know about the Sahara, right? That's the desert. The Sahel is just on the edge of the Sahara. And there are several hundred Muslim unreached people groups in this area that we think really could use access to God's word. So that's one of our focuses. I work with something called the Sahel Initiative. We try to get church planning agencies, Bible translation agencies, development agencies, media agencies working together to help reach some of those unreached people groups in the Sahel. And at the same time, I work with something called Seed Company, which is about Bible translation, life transformation. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of where Diane and I have been over the next 25 years. And that's kind of the context of the message that we want to talk about this morning. What does grace look like? There are three points to the message this morning. First, Paul's apostleship, giving the gospel of faith. Second, Paul's focus, the heart of the gospel. And third, Paul's source of power, God's enabling grace. The first verse I'd like to focus on this morning is the very first verse of that section where Paul says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. 
Paul came to the people of Corinth, and at the moment he came to Corinth for the first time, we don't know what they knew about the gospel. We don't know how much they'd heard about Jesus Christ. Maybe they'd heard the name. Maybe they'd heard some rumors. But when Paul came, he came as an ambassador. He lived in their midst. They could listen to him. They could ask him all their questions. They could see how he lived. They could, they could learn from that. That presence was really important. It's like he gave the gospel of faith. He gave the gospel of personal presence in this community. And when Diana and I went to Chad, we had the privilege of serving that role of ambassador as well. We believed then, and and we still believe strongly in the importance of having some sort of incarnational witness to actually be in the community, to rub shoulders with people on a daily basis. People saw us in our life in the village for good or for bad over a period of 10 years. We lived in that period in the village through some good times. We lived in the village in some very difficult times, times of famine, times when people had passed away, times when people had been beaten in the field as they were trying to take care of their fields. We, We lived with people during that time. Hopefully during that time, we were able to give the gospel a face. We have a friend in Portland who, uh, told us back at the beginning of the year that over Christmas he'd, uh, he'd attended a, a gospel concert or Christmas concert. And at that concert, one of the songs that they sang was called Grace Has a Face. I don't know if anybody here has ever heard the, the Christmas song Grace Has a Face. I'd never heard of it. But he said after he heard the, this song, the words of the song kept coming back to him over and over and over again. And in the song, it talks about the wise men following the star in the east in order to see the baby Jesus. And when they found him, the son of God who had become a man, they were struck by the fact for the first time, grace literally had a face. There was this child that they could see, they could touch with their hands, who at the same time was God become man. The chorus of the song says, hope has hands, freedom has feet. Truth will stand, the word will speak. The holy, that's God, and the lowly, that's all of us, will finally embrace, for love has a heartbeat and grace has a face. We all know that God is love, right? But when Jesus Christ was born into this world for the first time, love, God is love, love had a heartbeat. Here is God the Son, that they can see, that they can touch, and grace had a face. And I think in a similar way, when Paul arrived in Corinth to preach the gospel, he gave grace of face. He gave the gospel of face. There was somebody that they could see, somebody that they could touch, somebody that they could ask their questions to. He was there as an ambassador to Christ, just as Diane and I tried to be an ambassador for Christ in Kuba de Gaulle. So if you ask the question, what does grace look like? I think part of the answer to that question is that grace can look like you and I. Wherever we are, if we're at work, if we're at school, we're relating to our neighbors. We can give grace a face wherever God puts us. The second line I'd like to highlight, or the second verse passage I'd like to highlight, is begins in verse 3. It talks about Paul's focus. Paul says, For what I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, and that is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised the third day in accordance to the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, etc. I think we see here Paul's focus, sticking with what is the most important. There are four things, Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, his appearance to those other disciples. Focusing on Christ, on who he is, and on what that can mean for us. 
One of the projects I mentioned before that Dinah and I involved with in Chad was this Bible storing project. This is a group of the guys that were there. When we first started, we did translation, and we started with the Dungliat. And what we did is we gathered together all the, the Christian Dungliat that we could find. It was only 2% of the population. 98% of the Dongliat population was Muslim, but there were some believers, and they were willing to work with us in the translation. We had some Protestants, we had some Catholics who got them together and said, hey, what do you think about translating the Bible into Dongliat? It took a while, but the idea caught on. We found some people that were willing to work with us that had a gift for translation. Then we moved to Mongo, and we did that with five different groups. So we had some colleagues working with different groups. We'd get together for a week and we do about 20 verses per day, and we'd, we'd talk about what the verses meant in the morning. In the afternoon, they'd get together and translate them. We did that month after month after month. But that was mainly in a church context. But I told you before, in the Gera, there are 27 different languages, and we were trying to figure out, with all the groups that don't have a church, that have nothing, how can we start to help these groups have access to Scripture? So we worked with the church. The church sent out Chadian missionary families that worked on all these different, uh, all 27 groups at one point. And a few years later, we went back to the church and we said, well, all these Chadian missionaries out there, can you tell us where this is working, where there might be some traction, where there might be some people that would at least be willing to work with us to craft some Bible stories in their language? And they said, well, there's this one, there's this one, there's this one. In the end, they came up with six languages. So we organized a workshop. We had the five that we'd been working for before. I think there were six new ones. That's 11 total. We brought these people together. The first day of this workshop, about half the people there were Muslims. And we explained to them what we were planning to do. We were planning to, you know, do stories from the Bible. And we kind of half expected a good number of them would say, hey, this isn't for me. I'm out the door. But they didn't. They, they stuck around. They were kind of curious. So we started to work on the Bible stories. We did the story of creation. They loved the story of creation. We did the story of the fall. They loved it. We said these are stories from God's holy word, and they just accepted it. Okay, these are God's stories from God's holy word. We said, okay, you learn these stories. You don't just learn them. You have to go out and tell people in your family so that, you know, you can see if they're good stories or not. So they would go out and they would tell the stories to their family. We did those stories. We did stories from the life of Abraham. We did stories from the life of Joseph, uh, Moses. And, of course, we're eager to get to the New Testament. We're eager to get to the life of Jesus, kind of the solution. You know, we're setting the stage in the Old Testament, eager to get to the solution. You're not sure really how that's going to go. And I remember we'd have these workshops like every three months. And every time we were having one of these workshops, I'd always ask myself, you know, is anybody going to show up? You know, well, the word had finally gotten out and some, you know, religious leader will tell these guys, you know, don't set foot here. They're, you know, they're doing something bad. But, you know, they kept coming back. It was always a kind of a, a blessing and an encouragement for me when we saw them come back. And our goal throughout the whole process was to get people to, again, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. If they're going to stumble, let them stumble over that. Let them stumble over who Jesus Christ really is. Let them stumble over what the Bible said he did for us. We had a bit of a challenge when we got to the story of Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac. We wanted to do that story. But our Chadian friends we were working with said, no, you can't do that story because all the Muslims in our area believe that Abraham sacrificed Ishmael, not Isaac. So the moment they hear that word Ishmael, you're going to have a big fight. They're going to, no, 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 no,
And in the end, they advised us. They said, well, you know, this is story and it's not translation. You have a little bit more freedom. Why don't we just say it? Abraham took his beloved son without naming him. And then you tell the story. In their mind, they're going to think in Ishmael. We're thinking Isaac. Later, they can sort that out. But we're not going to sort it out now because, again, if they're going to stumble, let them stumble over who the Bible says Jesus Christ really is. I think maybe that's an example of trying to keep the focus on what's the most important. We can have lots of petty arguments. How many denominations do we have in the United States? We have all these little theological things that divide us up into so many groups. And those things are important. And it's important that people study those things. It's important that we have the PhDs in theology that can help us orient ourselves in those areas. But at least for Diane and I, I think we are, we are grateful to be able to work in the area of Scripture access. We don't care who you come from, where you go, what your background is. We want to try to provide the Scriptures for you. We want to, to help you begin meaningfully interact with the Scriptures and make your faith and practice based on the Scriptures and nothing else. And that's what we were able to do during that time of Chad. When Paul arrived in Corinth, he gave the gospel, of, the gospel uh, a face, And he told the people, keep what's most important in the center. And what's most important is Jesus Christ, who he was, who he is, and what that means for each of us in our daily day-to-day lives. What does grace look like? Well, it can look like you and me. And Paul encourages us to keep our focus on the thing that's most important. Final passage I'd like to, to focus your attention on is in the, toward the end of that passage, beginning in verse 9. Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Note that Paul says the grace of God that is with me. We use the word grace in the church context all the time. Where I grew up in West Seattle, Grace Baptist Church was just down the road. How many Grace Baptist churches are there in the United States? There must be 10,000. We love the word grace. And most of the time when we think of the word grace, it's in the, in the, in the context of saving grace. That by, by, by grace you are saved through faith, right? But there's another type of grace that's also extremely important, and that's, that's God's enabling grace. John Piper puts it like this. He says, this enabling grace is the power and beauty of God to keep us from sin and enable us to live in a manner pleasing to God. I kind of see it as a negative side and a positive side. God's enabling grace keeps us from sin. And the positive side, it enables us to live in a manner pleasing to God. I think of a man, perhaps a husband, a father, who's trying to be a good husband, trying to be a father, but he gets discouraged, he gets frustrated in the relationships, and he's tempted to take a step to the side from that narrow path. But God's enabling grace helps keeps us from sin and enable us to live a life pleasing to God. It's that enabling grace that can help us to get back on the path. It's God's enabling grace that can allow us to live in a manner pleasing, pleasing to God, to allow us to, to do something that's beyond what we could ever imagine. Dinah and I, during our first furlough, it was 1994, we were living in Kent. We'd come back for a shorter period of time, but we were expecting our fourth son, and our colleagues in Chad said, no, don't come back to Chad until your fourth son is born. Our third son was born in Chad. 
There's some complications, a little bit stressful for the group there. They said, no, wait till he's born and then you can come back. While we were gone, they put together this video. They were really proud of it. It was the video was to recruit more workers to come back to Chad. So they sent us to us and said, show all your friends this video. You can get a bunch of recruits and come back to Chad. So, you know, this is back in the old VCR days. We popped that in the, in the player and started to play. And we saw these people in turbans. We saw these camels. We saw this desert arid place, these, you know, arms. It's kind of scary. And both Anna and I's reaction, I mean, it's six months ago we'd been in Chad. You know, it was fine when we were there. We're looking at these pictures. We think, we don't want to go to this place. This place looks scary. And yet, somehow, we can look back on 25 years we spent in Chad. We raised our family there for the most part. And we can say we enjoyed it. God gave us relationships that were really meaningful. We, we allowed, God allowed us to see him working through us in ways that were very significant. And I think we can say with Paul that it was by God's grace that we were able to do that. We were able to live lives pleasing to God. We were able to do things that were beyond what we could ask or imagine. And I don't think it's just us. What's your Chad? What for you is like really scary? Maybe talking to a friend at school, maybe talking to a colleague, maybe addressing an issue that you really know needs to be addressed, but it seems really scary. Well, the answer is that you don't need to do that on your own. It's God's enabling grace that both keeps us from sin and allows us to live in a manner worthy of God. I mentioned relationships that we had with friends in Chad, and I want to invite my wife, Diane, to come at this point, and she's going to talk about one of those relationships that we formed while we were there as an illustration of God's enabling grace. Asking the Lord, what what does grace look like today has been part of my journey over the last couple of years when I read, first read this passage in 1 Corinthians. And I just wanted to be able to say at the end of that term, you know, his grace was not, his grace to me was not without effect. Or the, after the end of this day or after the end of this week. Um, so I began to really ask him, Lord, what does your grace look like today, right now? And um, sometimes when I would get into a tight spot and I would be asking him, he would give me like a phrase, like once it was, grace does not have to win, Diane. Like I'm very competitive, so it's like, okay, just let go of that one. Or, um, Or he would give me a verse like, you know, bearing with one another in all love. Or sometimes he would give me a situation or a a person. And so today I want to tell you about um, Amswar. She is, that means the mother of Swar. And she was a dear friend to me in Chad. She moved into our little village while we were on our first furlough. And she's not actually Dangaliat. So we learned Dangliat together. So she learned with me. She wanted to be able to talk to me in Dangliat. That was the only language that we shared. And uh, what was very interesting about her is that even though she grew up in an unbelieving home, she somehow came to the Lord. But her unbelieving father married her to a Muslim man. And it was just a very difficult relationship. And uh, she was a very strong woman. She actually was the leader of, became the leader of the women's group where we were. And she came to me one day, though, in tears. And she was like, I just can't live with this man any longer. Um, and then she looked at me 
like I was supposed to respond. And I just like, oh, Lord, please help me. I have no idea what to say. And then this question came to mind. And I said, so, Amswar, here you are. You're the leader in the women's group. And all these women are going to be coming to you they, with their, their marriage problems. So what are you going to say if you walk away? What have you got to say? And it was a very difficult, hard thing. But she accepted it and she went home. So fast forward, about two months down the road, we were traveling to a ladies' Bible study in a couple villages away. And about halfway there, I forgot my notes. And it was just this panic. And I thought, oh no, what's going to happen? I have no idea. Well, I don't really remember exactly what I spoke about that day, except that it was very short. And I remember that we had a question and answer time afterwards. And one of the women got up and said, do we have to keep living with our non-believing husbands if they don't support us in our faith? And suddenly I knew why the Lord had orchestrated the events of that day. And I looked over at Amswar, and she knew too. And she stood up. And every woman in that room knew her situation. She didn't have to even say a word. But she gave an impromptu sermon from 1 Corinthians about unbelieving wives being willing to stay with their unbelieving husbands if they were willing. And from 1 Peter about winning your unbelieving husband over without saying a word. Um, And then we asked the women who were in that situation to stand up and we prayed for them for courage for boldness, for perseverance. And it was just one of those holy God-orchestrated moments that I'll never forget. So that happened a few years ago. And so why am I telling this story? Um, Just before we left Chad in November, we got to go out to the village and say our goodbyes. And two days before our trip, which had been planned for months, her husband passed away. And so we were able to go to the village. It was just such a gift from the Lord and be able to sit with the group and with the way that they do death there and to um, give our condolences in good chatty and fashion. And I just was able to honor Amswar in front of all of her peers and say, you know, well done. You stuck it out day after day, year after year. And then she shared that her husband at the very end said, told her and her son, you know that you two are the ones, the only ones that ever really loved me. And he said, I want you to tell everybody that I'm dying as a Christian. And, you know, I don't, I don't know where Abu Swad is at this moment, but, uh, but God knows his heart but that's not the whole point of the story. The point is that Amswar was faithful and she was persevering and she just was faithful to the very end. And that's what grace looked like. The Bible says the first will be last and the last will be first. 
And the least of these will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. When I think of the least of these, I think of some of our friends in the Dongliad area like Amsuar. They live incredibly difficult lives. They've never had electricity in their water in their village. They've never had running water. They have all sorts of other challenges that come into their life, yet they've been faithful in their faith to God. She was challenged. She was at that point where she was on that narrow path and she was ready to bail. She was more than frustrated, more than ready to give up. Maybe she'd even taken a couple steps off to the side. I don't know. But because of God's enabling grace that keeps us from sinning and enables us to live lives pleasing to God, she was able to get back on that path. And because she was able to get back on that path later, God was able to use her to be a blessing and an encouragement to others. I don't know if any of us can really know to what degree we've been a blessing and encouragement to others. Diane was just telling me a story on the way up here of a biography that she was reading about a woman who had trained to be a nurse. She was working as a hospice nurse and was called to a certain house. And she was dealing with an older woman who was very obviously in the last days of her life. And they asked a few normal questions about how she was doing and whatnot. But really the interest, the woman was very interested in her. She was interested in where she was at, what she was doing, what God was doing in her life. And the woman was so impressed that this woman, although she had all sorts of pain, lots of challenges, was in the, one of the last days of her life, that she would be so not just thinking about herself, but interested in her and where she was at. In the course of that book, that woman became the mother of this woman's future husband. She didn't know that at the time. And it turned out she died one day after they had this conversation. But it's never too late. It's never too late to be at the place where say, okay, God, how can I help uh, grace have a face wherever you put me today. It's never too late and it's never too early. Sometimes we tend to think, well, you know, I can't really deal with that right now. But, you know, maybe a year from now, maybe when I'm in a different situation in life, you know, that that can happen. It's never too late. It's never too early. What does grace look like? Well, I think it can look a lot like you and I living out the gospel wherever God puts us. We need to keep our focus on what's most important. And we need to remember that it's not just about us. We don't have to do it in our own strength. But with God's enabling grace, he can help keep us from sin and help us live lives that are pleasing to God. Let's close in prayer. Dear God, we began the service this morning talking about your grace. And we said your grace is enough. And we all claim that promise this morning, God, that your grace be enough. We know the calling to which you called. You know that you called us to be to give grace a face wherever you put us. And we rely on your grace, God, to help keep us from sin, to help us live lives that are pleasing to you. And again, we sing, your love never fails. It never gives up, never runs out on me. And again, we claim the promise of that love, God, that your love will sustain us, your grace will sustain us. It will give the strength and courage to, to face whatever challenges you put in our way we'd be able to stay on that path that is straight and narrow and avoid jumping off in times of discouragement and times of frustration. That we keep our eyes focused on you. You're the source of our strength. We pray these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen.